Hi there, and welcome back, everybody. It's Tom. And this is Mario. And we're the hosts of After the End of History, the International Relations Podcast. Thanks for listening. This is episode number 18 on Kishore Mabubani's Has China Won? Yeah, I got myself this printer anyway, and it's been helpful because I can print out all your notes on these books you've been finding. Because I write copious notes. You, I write, you do. Um, I write about uh, 20 pages of notes per 100 pages of book. We're going we're gonna to kind of take episode 18 a little bit of a, def- a different direction. We wanted this to be the third and final part on Mabubani, but... Uh, Mario found a couple of books, which I'll let him introduce, that we wanted to use kind of as an interlude, a bridge to the third part, the third and final part on Mabubani. And these books are a little more related. Uh, they drill in a bit more into our last discussion on Mearsheimer, which is this idea that there's this inevitable conflict, one that's imminent between China and the United States vis-a-vis their grand strategy with respect to the Pacific. So, Mara, why don't you just give us a couple thoughts on what these books are, who the authors are, and why we're talking about them tonight? Sure. Um, so, in our last two episodes, we I think we covered uh, Mabubani pretty well and in depth, and actually dispatched you know the bad stuff from Mabubani and recovered everything that was good in it, mm-hmm. and brought in Mearsheimer t- at the end of the episode um, to bring in a kind of realist critique of some of Mabubani's arguments that were heavily weighted in terms of economic interdependence and sort of what we argued were kind of cultural determinist views of China's ascendance. Mm -hmm. Our discussion about Mearsheimer brought us into discussing some, you know, issues of naval strategy, grand strategy in the Asia Pacific, some discussion of types of weapon systems that are used and a sort of overall grand strategic horizon that the United States um, basically is under as it faces this new, this rising power. And I found a few texts, one being um, a book by Michael Green, by More Than Providence, Grand Strategy and American Power in the Asia Pacific since 1783. Obviously, we didn't read all of that book, but just the closing chapters, which deal with the Obama presidency's pivot to Asia. Yeah, I wanted I wanted to thank a, you uh, just for a second for not making us read that entire book, because I think it's like 750 pages long, but it's from 1783 to the present. So it's, yeah. it's a long history there. But what we zeroed in on was the section purely on Obama's pivot to Asia. So it should be said that, you know, what we cover here tonight is not the full extent of that book. In fact, it's a no. massive tome and, and it's not one we're going to get into beyond the, the Obama material. That's right. And Michael Green was, um, I guess, a naval advisor or, you know, sort of Asia expert in the Bush um, administration. Yeah, that's right. Then another book I turned to was by um, Toshi Yoshihara and James R. Holmes, and the book's called Red Star Over the Pacific, China's Rise and the Challenge to U.S. Maritime Strategy. This book, published in 2018, I think it's an update of a previous um, edition, is um, issued by the Naval Institute Press. And these are, you know, naval 
war college eggheads and strategists who have looked at the strategic culture in China and examined some of the strategic concepts and um, discourses happening within Chinese academia and military journals and military culture. <clears throat> and they build a kind of argument that um, China is, in fact, has a will to the sea and poses a kind of classical Mahanian uh, venture towards willing command of um, first the South China Sea, but also um, the, the Pacific at large, and put their China's rise in a sort of historical maritime context. And then finally, um, another text I wanted to, us to look at and talk about is by Captain Henry Hendricks, At What Cost a Carrier? And you and I came across this text um, from Mabubani himself because he references it as um, evidence of the sort of lack of strategic foresight on the part of American naval procurement right. and preparing for the novel um, type of challenge that China poses. One that is not one that's trying to put large fleets into the ocean to counter the United States, but one that's going to use this A2AD, which is air access, air defense style of um, countering America's naval superiority. Um, in the region, I think it's an so, it's it, Mario. It's, I think it's anti-area access denial, right? Anti-area access denial. That's right. Yeah, let's get that shit right. All right, yeah. going to be real. What did I say? I don't know. You said air access, air or something. I don't know what you were saying. Air access, area denial. <laughs> Damn, take that out then. <laughs> can't I can't uh, mess it up the first time because I. <laughs> well, that's one thing about these books. I mean, I think they're they're all really readable books. I mean. Like so many others, we're reading their kind of classic examples of these amphibious intellectuals who easily hop out of, you know, State Department positions or special assistant positions to presidents, and then they end up in academia. Uh, but mm -hmm. and, and for this reason, they're very clear writers because they are, you know, counseling the princes, as we'd like to say. So they're, they're, they use some jargon, but it's, it's, they're very clear they have very precise terms, so it's important to get a lot of that stuff right. Um, not to slap you too much on the wrist, Mario, but we are going to get into anti-access uh, anti uh, area. Uh -huh. yeah, <laughs> God damn it. Okay. One, one thing I want to do is just get started from um, the top there and get into some of the highlights of each one of those books beginning with Green, who is, uh, as you mentioned, a, George, a Georgetown professor and special assistant at some point in his life to George Bush. I think it was in, um, I think he was in the administration from 2001 to 2005. And some who have read this book uh, by more than providence have critiqued it on some level for being biased and not being able to see some of the failings of the Bush administration. And Gordon Chang, who had reviewed this book for the New York Times, back when it came out in 2017, had noted that Green wasn't quite hard enough on the Bush administration for basically giving a little bit of a green light for China to run as it wanted through the South China Sea. It was a little too forgiving. But it kind of shows um, what the debates are, what the milieu that this book came out in is. And But despite all of that, I think despite his proclivities, his political background. There's a lot to learn from this. I learned a lot from your notes on uh, the pivot to Asia. And I thought we should just mm -hmm. focus on that. If you could give us um, what is the historically novel situation that 
Obama is responding to? And is there anything in Obama's pivot to Asia that we can see alive and well today in American foreign policy? Um, well, the historically novel aspect of um, China's rise is, of course, that a imminent great power competitor is also extremely economically interdependent with the world's largest superpower, the United States. Um, and this is something that John Mearsheimer underlined in his um, sort of explanation for why he expects there to be conflict in the region, that it's an unbalanced multipolar system, is to say that it's not like the bipolar system that existed in Europe during the Cold War. Mm -hmm. And that this presents um, a bunch of challenges in terms of perceiving the nature of on both sides of perceiving the nature of the threat um, one to the other of China vis-a-vis -vis the United States. But also there are aspects that are a little bit more akin to a, a kind of classical European age of rivalrous states that have to balance each other in a multipolar system as existed for, you know, 500 years in the European interstate system. Um, one of the, the launching points for Green's analysis at the, in his chapter on Obama is a, is I think a a gloss on a, Ki a Henry Kissinger article that of course is a kind of missive to the incoming president at the time mm -hmm. to Obama to treat Asia as a um, as an area similar to Europe in the age of great power rivalry that India China Japan these are all major states that although you know under the sort of shadow of the United States the security umbrella either inside or outside of it, are still um, sort of going to interact with each other in a way akin to the great power rivals of of, um, of Europe. Yeah, and, and I just, you know, I mentioned this historical novelty of the Obama years, and, and you mentioned this response to uh, Kissinger, perhaps, or this pressure from Kissinger in an op-ed uh, op he wrote, I forget for, yeah. for who, but um, there there is a point that Green makes, which is there's been an orientation towards the Pacific and towards China and Japan, basically from the inception of the United States as a nation. So there is there's sort of this dynamic between historical novelty and the particularities of, of, of one administration or another. But there's always been this pivot to Asia. So it's almost a misnomer that there's this special pivot to Asia, or it was created by Obama. What are the unique facets of Obama's pivot to Asia? I mean, it comes in the context of really when we start to talk about China's rise. So there's something of that that we have to account for in this story. But take us through a little bit of what's unique in Obama's pivot. Well, I guess what's unique about it is the, aside from the plans to um, commit, you know, 3,000 Marines on a rotational basis throughout the, um, you know, sort of island chains and allied nations, or the, you know, or reorientation of making there being 60% of forces in the Pacific versus 40 in Europe. What's distinct about the, the pivot to Asia is also um, a kind of, you know, this might seem not hugely significant, but it's a movement away from the Nixon doctrine or the Guam doctrine, which was something that was put in place as a sort of moving back of a major force posture back to the second island chain. And so, um, Obama is moving things a little bit more forward to the first island chain. So it's a kind of, it's a stricter form of containment on China. Just to take a step back and talk about what the Guam Doctrine is, the way I understand it is Nixon had this concept of, yes, playing a strong role in 
the Pacific, as the United States was always oriented towards, but wouldn't be an active kind of participant or a nation that would intervene in all affairs. It would be more of a, right. a nuclear umbrella and called to task when necessary, but not necessarily. And assist nations, and assist but it, nation, wouldn't, right. it wouldn't back them up entirely. Which I think is, is maybe akin to uh, that understanding of being an offshore balancer that we started talking about with Lane in our first few episodes. Is that about right? Yeah, yeah. I think that's the right way to, to, to put it. I mean, especially casting it in a kind of just a, the wider strategic analytic. I'm sure there are all kinds of aspects that um, maybe um, contradict that throughout the history since then in terms of America, what's, what America has done. But overall, I think that's it's basically how the United States is oriented. The pivot towards Asia is a more, um, you know, muscular force posture, basically, up to the, through the to the first island chain. I think you, the, the way you put it originally was moving the defense line forward. The historically specific conditions of that pivot on Obama's part and playing a more offensive role, perhaps, or moving the defense line forward is the news that we started to see around 2008 or really start to pay attention to it in that period where China is becoming more active across these small island groups like the Paracel Islands, the Spratly Islands. Yeah, it's a response to um, uh, China's increasing assertion. And um, you could what from the perspective of many American allies, bellicosity. And we've talked in previous episode about, you know, the nature of the conflicting claims on some of these areas about how many features in the region are the majority of which are controlled by other countries. It's a kind of a tit for tat and it has these aspects of kind of prestige fl um, flouting and um, kind of historical legacy reckoning, I think, to a lot of them. But one thing I noticed in, in green is there's this um, there's kind of a tension between how a how uh, or a tension in the way that the United States historic allies in the region have responded to that pivot to Asia. It seems on the one hand, they welcomed it because, of course, the United States could play this balancing role and keep this multipolar situation in check as a peaceful and stable one. But on the other hand, I think mm -hmm. some leaders responded to other decisions on Obama's part, like in Syria, as a sign of weakness. Uh, uh, and, and one example would be the, uh, the so-called red line that was crossed in Syria. And Obama not doing anything about that indicated that he wouldn't be strong enough to really play a, a balancing role against China. So can you can you talk a little bit about that tension and, and how allies are perceiving this this coming conflict? Yeah, I mean, at, you know, I, I stand with Seymour Hirsch on uh, the, <laughs> the chemical attacks in Syria. But leaving that to one side, given that, you know, many uh, international players think that there was a, you know, a chemical attack by the Syrian government, that that, that, <laughs> that the, the you know, Obama's ability to deal with and shift from the Middle East and the sort of commitments the United States still maintain there and also um, manage a shift towards Asia was a big thing that Asian countries were looking at. And um, for Green, the early part of the Obama administration um, was one of sort of mixed signals in which many um, Asian countries saw Obama's the ability of Obama to give a strategic reassurance to them as not exactly um, not as forceful as they had hoped. Right. Yeah. It's kind of conceived as an ill-defined pivot. I mean, welcomed in broad strokes, but in in its particular expression, at least in the earlier parts of his administration. 
think really until 2015, it was conceived as maybe badly formed and, and not well thought out. I think there was a, a 2009 joint statement with Hu Jintao, which declared building uh, that they were building and deepening bilateral strategic trust in which each side agreed to respect e- each other's core interests. And yeah. it's it's I mean, I think there was maybe some there's some fear on the part of some of these leaders that the United States was kind of giving a green light to China, maybe not being hard enough. And yeah. Xi Jinping had created this proposal for a new model of great power relations. And and I think that might have shaken the the allies a bit, you know, and thinking, oh, we're talking about great power relations here. Wait a second. Shouldn't this be a moment of U.S. hegemony? And, and this, the, you know, this isn't the kind of stability that we were hoping for. So I think this kind of gave exactly. rise to some the- credibility issues on Obama's part. Yeah, I think it's a it's a matter of you know diplom- diplomatic and political rhetoric. I think it was a signal that Green makes it seem like it was basically lazy speech on the part of Obama and advisors Donlin, Kerry, and Susan Rice adopting the same language that Xi Jinping was using. Um, you know, of a new model of great power relations. Susan Rice, I think, said it's a good conceptual framework for bilateral relations. And so that sends a signal to other leaders around the world. But they're adopting something, you know, um, either wholeheartedly or not critically by Xi Jinping and by this rising power. And that sent a, a signal that they were going to basically um, take China's bait and, and, and cede to its rise and cede to the terms on which it saw itself as a legitimate power broker in the, in the region. And, and then even this, just because Biden's our president now, even Biden reconfirmed Xi's new model in a 2013 speech, including an air defense identification zone over Korean and Japanese islands. To this, Japan asked the State Department not to publicly embrace Xi's concept. (laughs) Secretary of State Chuck Hagel changed his tune in a 2014 um, Singapore summit. So once Joe Biden, like, you know, totally just started to, to, um, you know, riff on it, um, (laughs) during his um, trip to to China, um, Japan sent a signal that you guys need to tone that down. That's right. The Obama administration realized um, as the, you know, the next years of the second term um, proceeded that it had to be much clearer about its orientation towards China's um, claims in the South China Sea and its its commitments to allies and to deploy forces in the region. Yeah, that's right. And I want to talk a bit more about that, you know, to the point of moving the defense line forward in response to that orientation. We mm-hmm. we did just a moment ago talk about how there's this overturning or maybe modification to the Guam doctrine, and Obama would be uh, looking for a more interventionist type role or a more, I guess, um, readily present American role in, in the East and South China Seas. But it's not a straight line. There's some history to it. And and starting, you know, early on in his administration, we're talking 2009, the Rand Corp came out with a study that showed maybe China's vulnerability wasn't as severe as they might have thought originally. And, you know, what Rand Corp was able to find was that China had missile capabilities across the Taiwan Strait that could be pretty damaging and prevent the United States from, you know, exercising its will in the region. So I think there, there's a lot to be said in that study. And showing that the pivot was reinforced by technological developments that were coming uh, to the surface and China's capabilities. Um, so can you talk about that a bit more and um, just from the military side of the house? 
Yeah, it's part of Beijing's near sea doctrine, um, which has been in existence for a while, but was made all the more effective by um, the development and rollout of these ballistic missiles, these sort of anti-ship um, ballistic missiles That's right. that can be used in a kind of sufficient or a large quantity in this sort of swarm tactic of targeting that promises to do heavy damage to um, any battleship fleets that the U.S. has in the region. And so in response to that, the Pentagon had developed this air-sea battle strategy, which is heavily dependent upon aircraft carriers and the normal battle fleets already in the at America's disposal in the region. And as we'll talk about later in this um, episode, there's a whole bunch of costs that that brings to bear that make it not the wisest strategy as a way of as a way of countering uh, China's capabilities in the region, because they're heavily dependent on um, you know aircraft carriers as source of sorties and um, delivery of um, firepower to to China in ways that don't really counter the the capabilities that are given that that China has as a um, land base with with its land based platforms of attack. Yeah. Yeah, and so that so th- this brought so this basically brought into to the conflict or brought the the issue to bear that as America is pivoting towards Asia, that it has a kind of strategic conundrum in terms of cost and benefit analysis, in terms of the platforms it's using, and its um, sort of longevity in posing them. Where I want to go now is um, talk a little bit more about um, the archipelagic defense that Obama wanted to start playing um, in in the region, which I think is part of his response to the Guam Doctrine, or as we've said before, the modification of it. Could you describe what archipelagic defense is and um, how it plays into the story? Well, it's basically an older concept that um, goes all the way back to the beginning of the Cold War. And um, is the basic um, geostrategic way that um, Cold War state planners thought of um, containing China when it went when China went red, and so people like Dean Acheson right, and yeah. um, and MacArthur and various other people and and, and Eisenhower understood that the first island chain, what we call now the first island chain. Um, was part of an archipelago of allied states that the United that the U.S. Um, would use as a way of countering China in the Asia Pacific, and a very important part of that, of course, was Taiwan. Yeah, oh, yeah. And Big time. Um, there were crises in the Ta- in the Taiwan Straits in the mid '50s. Later on, there's another sort of minor one in the in the mid '90s. But in the early stages of the Cold War, um, the importance, the strategic importance of Taiwan was well understood and was publicly voiced by you know American um, by American state planners. Now we only now do we look back at it and tend to think of it as simply a kind of historical trauma and a kind of uh, uh, a historical issue that China once settled. But it actually is a, a pretty important geostrategic um, pivot for. Um, China's um, thinking about how to 
establish defense in depth in the South China Sea. Yeah, it's interesting to consider how many aspects of the Cold War are exhibited in this story. And, uh, you know, one of them obviously is there's a hardcore policy of containment, even with respect to China. When we talk about containment, or as at least, at least as far as we've talked about it on this show, it's always been with respect to the Soviet Union. And we've noted that it wasn't containment, it was rollback. And I think it's arguably the same strategy here, rollback by other, by another name called containment. And that's why it's such a big deal when, you know, you might look at the, you know, the Spratly Islands or the Paracel Islands and people say, oh, they're a bunch of rocks, it's reefs, you know, what's the big deal? The big deal is that this is, this is China countering, effectively countering that containment strategy on the part of, um, you know, the United States. And you have to remember, uh, th this similarity with the Cold War only goes so far. This costs a lot of money for China to, for the United States to maintain this archipelagic defense and being, uh, you know, projecting forward, you know, forcing this defense line even farther forward. And you also have to remember, and here's where the limit of the Cold War really comes into play as an analogy, is that China has been extremely successful, even more so than Russia and, uh, you know, before that, Japan in developing its naval technology and capabilities in the region. So on the one hand, you have this extremely cost-efficient, which you'll talk about, cost-efficient infrastructure that China has put in place and has countered against the United States, all the while the United States is spending tons and tons of money irrationally on these outdated, practically outdated weapon systems. So it's, you know, you can see the Cold War in this story, but really the China has the advantage relative to the original uh, benchmark, um, the Cold War between the United States and the Soviet Union. Yeah, I'd agree with that, that it has the advantage compared to that other benchmark, just because it um, it has a, you know, weapon systems and strategy appropriate to its own geographic position and um, is in a position where it can continue to spend on naval technology and um, weapon systems. But it um, isn't you know, out of the woods at all. And <laughs> right. um, the U.S. obviously wants to maintain its power position to be able to cut off choke points in the region. Um, if the, if the, if the um, security competition got to a point where they would want to choke ec China's economic growth, right? That's right. It's the United States and so much of the world is still dependent upon Chinese um, production and in the flows of trade, which come from China. Naval strategy aspect has not yet impinged on China's growth, but there's there could easily be a point where that happens. And you can see why China would want to position itself so that it's not put in a the tough position of being controlled by the U.S. so close to its, you know, so close to its shores, but also in an area where it can um, cut off the main arteries of its um of its sources of wealth. Yeah, that's great. And I think that gets us to, um, that'll take, you know, we'll, we'll speak more on that point when we get to the Yoshihara and Holmes on uh, Red Star over the Pacific. But uh, let's round out the, the green book for now and, and talk about, let's pivot a little bit from the military question to uh, the one of alliances and trade, which is in, uh, you know, di a different form uh, a cheaper way of containing China, I think. I mean, I, I really think that's what TPP could have been was an economic uh, containment strategy vis-a-vis uh, -vis China. So, so how does how does Green talk about these um, 
you know, the, the value of free trade and um, United States grand strategy? Well, he, he recognizes, you know, the whole continuity of the open door to free trade agreements of the, you know, 90s and up to TPP as extremely strategically important for the U.S. for, you know, establishing the ability of um, free flow of, of capital between allied countries, but also arbitration between them to, to handle disputes, blah, 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 blah. Everything everybody says about free trade agreements. Yeah. But he recognizes that in the Obama administration, there was a, there's as a Democrat, an ambivalence that made it difficult for him to sort of wholeheartedly and um, very effectively um, pursue the TPP agreement while he was president and instead basically kind of left it till the end of his presidency to, to um, try to um, shepherd it into law or speed speed that process up, and it ended up being a kind of uh, something that became a referendum during the 2016 election, and there and was a big reason why it didn't pass. One thing I learned reading Green is that um, Obama, or at least he he reminded me that Obama was initially hesitant um, or reluctant to be uh, supportive of TPP. And I don't remember why. Um, I, I don't know if this was pressure from the you know so-called left wing of the Democratic Party, um, noting the impact it could have on unions um, and you know labor rights, human rights, etc. What was that initial hesitance? And and could you give us a brief history of what moved him to eventually support it and really go full fledged on it? I think yeah, it's just what you you indicated, which is that despite. Um the you know lack of how hard it is for this to be registered in mainstream news. Most Americans aren't really for all these free trade agreements, and they <laughs> yeah. have a they have a direct kind of you know f- you know uh, they have a lived experience and cor- and correlate you know the dec- their own declining li- like you know expectations and chances for success in life with this whole era of free trade agreements. Um, so he knew it wasn't you know, a really electorally savvy thing to push. And so it's only, he avoids it for, I think, a couple of years. Um, and then Kevin Rudd in Australia and Lee Myung-bak in Korea um, sort of um, urge him to move forward on TPP and then a similar agreement with um, Korea, the chorus. And um, also um, Japanese Prime Minister Abe pushes him as well to get Congressional Trade Promotion Authority so that that he he could actually um, make the agreement, and it wouldn't have to go back to to Congress to be approved. He doesn't get that, and instead <laughs> it urges them to to make. Obama <laughs> kicks the can back to world leaders in the region to to perfect the agreement so that he has the best version of TPP, so that he can present it to the American people to be ratified. This doesn't really happen before the um, 2016 election, and so for this reason. In a certain respect, I mean, I, I remember this very well in 2016, even Hillary Clinton basically abandoning support for TPP during, right. the, during the campaign trail because the election in some ways became a referendum on on TPP itself. It came up a ton anyway. Yeah, that's really interesting. And and I, I the, the one thing that I think is uh, apparent from this stumbling over the question of TPP, I mean, it's obviously an, a horrible uh, arrangement for, for China the way it's posed. I mean, it was designed you know, to exclude China. And it was, as I said, an economic containment strategy. But uh, this, while the United States is stumbling over this question in large part because of Obama's misperception of the 
of signals and, and kind of being ambivalent on it. China is starting to take advantage of that void and, and establishes the Asia in, Asia Infrastructure and Investment Bank, AIIB usually. Yeah, that's right. And what's the significance of that, the establishment of that bank? Is it right to say that it was established kind of in this period of stumbling that the United States demonstrated on TPP? Yeah, it's basically as a part of the larger period of, of uh, or the larger um, efforts of China to help itself and by extension the world economy get out of the 2008 crisis was a huge credit-fueled um, infrastructure investment bout not only in China but throughout the Asian, Asian, Asia and Central Asian region. And it called on other countries throughout the world to join this, this effort to construct a form of infrastructure investment that other countries would be involved in. And I think... I mean, it looks like a public good, right? I mean, it, it, this is largely yeah. a positive thing. And I don't think that gets reflected in, I mean, like we say about everything, but it doesn't get reflected in the mainstream press. It's often demonized as by, by some even on the left as Chinese imperialism or something to that effect. All right. Well, so I think that's basically the heart of Green's chapter on the pivot to Asia uh, under the Obama administration. But uh, why don't you give us a quick summary of what this legacy is? Uh, you know, we started by asking, you know, how is it historically conditioned? What is it responding to in China's grand strategy? But let's move to that second point. If you could quickly say, uh, what is its legacy? How do we see it being played out today? Yeah, I think it's it's important to um, highlight this so we can better um, contrast the Obama and Trump administrations in, in Asia. So the things that Green lists are an upgrade of U.S.-Japan defense guidelines, um, align the trans-Pacific and intra-Asia institutional architecture, which basically just means, um, you know, established um, firmer um, alliances with that were part of that archipelagic defense against China. Eventually, advanced TPP, a big trade liberalization effort. It does that doesn't work, um, and that became something that Trump could rail against. Um, and then if Obama reversed the Guam doctrine or the the Nixon doctrine. All right. So the next yeah. book we wanted to talk about is Red Star Over the Pacific by Yoshihara and Holmes, uh, both of whom are experts in naval strategy. They both teach or have taught at the Navy War College, uh, which I believe is in Rhode Island. So these guys are uh, not just counsels to the princes, but they are the, you know, they educate the strategists who are in the Navy carrying out America's grand strategy in the Pacific. Yoshihara himself. And they are actual experts. They are actual experts on like um, Navy technology. And um, one of them also reads Chinese. So they're not just Beltway dupes, you know. No, and and I should say fr from the beginning that I thought this book was a kind of mind blowing. Uh, this is not what I would normally read, you know, the, the kind of in depth naval strategy or whatever. But this was really eye opening. Um, not for the reasons they want it to be eye opening. You know, they want they want this to be eye opening to Navy culture. You know, to really instill the values of Mahan and the up and coming elite of naval strategy. But it was eye opening to me. From, a, from another direction, which is it made me look at a map, you know, it made me open up the map, look at the, the coast of China, look at where all these major cities are located, and, and what it points out towards. I mean, you know, obviously, the Philippines are there, Taiwan, South Korea, you know, Japan, obviously, but thinking about it in military terms, it's, 
it, it kind of makes you think China's kind of screwed, right? I mean, from a geopolitical standpoint, because it's, it's, the, and we'll talk about the first island chain and what that is. But really, this, if you look out from the coast of China out east, it's just a great wall. And this is how it's described by Yoshihara, a great wall on which stands the great defenders of, uh, you know, America's containment policy. Right. And that first island chain is this C-shaped, you know, force field against China exercising its will in the Pacific. And it basically stops right there at Taiwan, you know, and, and, and it's just a C-shape right through Taiwan from South Korea all the way down to the Philippines. But, yeah. you know, without going too much more in detail about the map, I just want to say what this, the, the chapter that we're going to be discussing from Red Star over the Pacific is about the first island chains and how how crucial that is just as a geospatial fact to China's understanding of itself in the world, what its ambitions are. And I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that it shapes its entire grand strategy. Would you say that's a fair assessment from not, not just in general, but um, at least what these authors are trying to present? No, I think that's definitely fair. Um I think that um, when you realize that this has been a um, strategic situation that's, um, you know, been in existence for, you know, 70 years, you could, it puts China's, um, I guess, frustration and um, it, frustration into proper perspective because it's so much of its economic dynamism is located on coastal areas. Right. Right. You have the... You have the Pearl River Delta, the Yangtze River Delta, and the Bohai Economic Rim, which is closer to, you know, that's where, near where Beijing connects to, and that's closer to um, South Korea. And all of these areas, which, you know, probably contain more than half of the country's GDP, um, are very exposed to naval incursion and attack from the U.S. and its allies. And so being so exposed and having to manage their nation's own economic rise, very much dependent upon maritime traffic, while being exposed to a great superpower and its allies in the region, would obviously make anyone extremely worried, right? That's right. And it's from this perspective that they cast China's rise in this as part of a classical Mahanian logic of, na of naval growth sustained through the revenues generated by trade which fosters further economic prosperity, which fosters greater technological innovation and, and eventually is going to have to create a situation in which naval capabilities give, give China, put China in the position where they can challenge um, the American security architecture in the region. And it, it really corroborates a lot of the things that um, Mearsheimer said in his disagreement with Mabubani, but in a much more sort of technical, technical naval logistic fashion. Whereas Mearsheimer's, what we said in the last episode about Mearsheimer was very much a kind of, in terms of um, a realist um, systems analysis of the region and in terms of sort of historical precedence of other um, situations where th scenarios like this generated conflict. This, this um, Yoshihara and Holmes' book gives, does a really good job of explaining the kind of geoeconomic force field that's, that's sort of driving this. Yeah, yeah. And, and I think it's important to, to, to point out that each link in this chain plays a different role, like a very specific role. And what was most interesting to me, or at least 
what I understood as being where the stakes are highest is Taiwan. And I think it's worth taking a minute just to talk about that. You know, as they say, it's the central link in this island chain conception. Losing China, I'll just read a quote here from some Chinese strategists, um, which, by the way, Yoshihara and Holmes mentioned by name, which I thought was refreshing to to understand. Yep. You know, there 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 are these uh, you know there, there are books you can read from Chinese strategists and and get a sense of what their perspective is, how they're thinking about grand strategy. And this was yep. one of the the more I think uh, striking quotes. It goes: "Losing Taiwan to China would be a break in the island chain." of the Western Pacific that constitutes for the U.S. and other free nations the geographic backbone of their security structure in that ocean, which I think is, I think says a lot. You know, if you break that point, it's essentially breaking the central nexus of the United States containment strategy. And to really understand how important Taiwan is to this story, he asks us to imagine a pyramid, you know, a, a, or a triangle drawn on the map from Shandong you know, which is in the north, it's uh, the Shandong Peninsula, to Taiwan, and then drawing an equidistant line from Taiwan down to Hainan, right? And imagine that as a triangle along the coast, right? Where's Hainan? It's the island that's, uh, it's just to the, it's just to the east of Vietnam, central Vietnam. It's a a large island. Uh, There's actually a a lot of really interesting history we could get into, but you can imagine this, this pyramid or triangle, you know, this, and, and if you're looking at a map, you can see what I mean. Um, yeah. So imagine if Taiwan is is controlled, right? It becomes a military base for China essentially, and is a is a is a, say a, an eastern limit of China, China's force projection, right? Right. Then the stakes are incredibly high as an advantage for China because now what happens to the United States? They have to fall back to the second island chain, which is centered primarily on what Guam. So now exactly. So now think about the reverse case. If the United States now just cuts off that center component of this pyramid, right? And Taiwan becomes, say, occupied as a U.S. base, which is not completely outside the realm of possibility. That splits that line from Shandong down to Hainan in two. And now what you're looking at is a completely different set of challenges for China in protecting that coastal area that you mentioned is an economic powerhouse for the region. So I think, yeah. to me, that was such a striking illustration of what's at stake for Taiwan. Sorry, what's at stake for China in its relations with Taiwan. And it kind of opens up this uh, really interesting discussion of, of what happens if the United States is forced back to the second island chain. What does that mean for breaking U.S. hegemony? I think it's, mm-hmm. it's as those Chinese strategists said, strategists said, it would be breaking the backbone of not just their pacific strategy but their entire hegemonic relationship with that part of the world that region of the world so i just wanted to take a little bit of time to talk about that because it was not just um you know it's not just because it it is it's always in the news this discussion of taiwan but because it was a a really effective illustration through just pointing at a map and looking at it no indeed um because obviously you probably shared this with me is having thought about the taiwan issue mostly in terms of a kind of um historical issue of historical baggage and an issue of reunification for the purposes of settling culture and, and national identity, yeah, that and, kind of stuff. Yeah. Right. National identity. Yeah, exactly. But, um, he really, um, shows how pivotal China reunifying with Taiwan would be for puncturing the first Island chain line of defense. But, and then along with that line of defense too, I, we should also indicate is that 
that's also on its northerly tip is southern Japan. That's right. And so right. once once that's punctured, you can see immediately that um, Japan has a great deal to worry about and is going to invest as much as it can in pushing the United States to back up its claims and back up the resources to um, hold the first island chain. So it it you can see it's very it's not just pivotal, but it has this sort of you know hate to use this in um, in reverse, but um, a kind of it could have a domino effect um, <laughs> right. over the longer over the longer term if you can imagine the United American um, economic the economic Americans economic powerhouse to dwindle that over thirty years reunifying Taiwan could lead to a, a precipitous event that is a satisfies all of China's um, strategic dreams to push the United States even back to the second island chain. That's right. Yeah. One thing I really like about the book is that it it might not intend to do this, but my reading of it is it legitimizes some of the actions that China has taken in the region that get demonized in the American press and um, and and not just from, you know, the, you know, what we call the bourgeois media, you know, New York Times and the Washington Post, which you would expect to demonize these kind of actions of building military bases on reef formations or whatever, but yeah. it's it's th by drawing this picture of the sea, the sea-shaped encirclement, it really legitimizes what would you do, you know, if if this were your backyard, right? And and mm -hmm. for for centuries, this was, uh, you know, your area of you know of of cultural. Uh, development and and national identity. What would you do in those circumstances? And it gives you know it gives some credence or um, gives some legitimation to those actions, and and really helps you understand that in fact these aren't just reasonable actions on the part of the Chinese, but it's it's essential to their own existence and certain sovereignty to an extent. And of course, all of these strategic insights that we're you know talking about from Yoshihara are also imbued with tremendous, you know, national fervor as well, which makes all the more, um, which strengthens the Mearsheimer argument, right? That these are easily seen as um, issues of, you know, rectification of that era of Chinese humiliation. And that right. um, it was very hard to imagine a Chinese leader backing down. Yeah. On this issue. Yeah, that's especially right. Especially on Taiwan. It's Taiwan first and foremost. We've talked about, I think, the the gist of half of this chapter, which is describing the geospatial facts, as I said before, and the the sea line encirclement or whatever, um, and, mm -hmm. and some of China's dreams, as they call them, for the region. But there's another really interesting part, maybe the second half of this story, which is Yoshihara and Holmes talking about China taking inspiration from some of the canon of American geopolitics, and, and namely Mahan, who we alluded to earlier. I'm not as comfortable with that material. I think you've actually read it, but what is what's the significance of Mahan? Who is he? And and is it is it true? Do you think that China is really taking a page from his strategy in developing their um, their outlook for the region? Um, well, to answer the second part, um, the they. The authors would argue categorically, yes, that if just from reading the things that are produced in Chinese universities and in its military academies, they've all, they're all, um, keen, um, readers of Mahan, Sir Julian Corbett, um, Clausewitz, and, um, all the classical military strategists. The reason why Mahan is so important is because he's a theorist of the, the importance of naval power 
for a nation's um, national development and for its attainment of great power status. And part of that is a kind of virtuous cycle of developing trade, developing a kind of merchant marine or um, maritime um, trading basis that then becomes a, a kind of taxable income that can fund the development of a navy, which can then expand trade, expand diplomatic um, reach, and continue to make one's presence felt on the high seas, and eventually put oneself in the position where you can fund the, the production of capital ships, which allows you to truly command the seas, which means to basically use coercion on the seas to be in control of the commons. And what that does is gives one the ability to um, create a safe environment for what a nation's commerce. Yeah, I think the, the way that um, I saw they put it, again, I haven't read Mahan, so I'm just taking their word for it, but I, I like this description of it, which is um, trade begets power, power begets access, and access begets trade. And that beautiful cycle is what gives rise to this Mahanian um, you know, theory of the, the centrality of the Navy to one's political power. National development. National development yeah. even, yeah. But one other thing, too, is that it's, it's important to cast it as a strategy as opposed to simply a theory of naval warfare, right? I mean, the, the reason why it's a strategy is because it involves a whole kind of imp certain imperatives of industrial development, of guiding, you know, natural national resources um, towards certain ends and getting a um, kind of consensus within, in Mahan's case, within American democratic society geared towards long-term goals, right? And that what that does is re requires... Um, policymakers to think on the long term and to put diplomatic and military concerns in pro in relationship to longer term strategy, as opposed to simply being um, under the sway of the short term sort of blinkered vision of military experts who might be extreme have great expertise in their particular field, but they don't know how to um, you know sort of wrap it all around to a certain type of policy that uses the strengths of a country to its utmost. Yeah. And um, I hope this doesn't get me in trouble with some listeners, but to the extent that he is helping Chinese strategists nullify America's containment strategy, I'll just say cheers to Alfred Thayer Mahan. Actually, that's, that might be a nice segue into the, the next book that you read. Um, I don't know if it's a book, it's actually. An I think it's yeah, an, an essay. What, what is the guy's name uh, again? Captain Henry Hendricks. Reporting for duty, sir. Captain. I, I, I already hate him. Yeah. Well, you've been calling yeah. him Captain the whole time. You've never neglected to, to give him <laughs> that, that honorific. It's like you, you have a deep respect <laughs> yeah. for the military. That's good. No, I, I know. I, I know. Right. Exactly, yeah. He's the type of guy that would probably yell at me for not standing up for the national anthem at a baseball game or something. And we're gonna we're gonna shit all over aircraft carriers right now. So oh, yeah, you know he's got that going for him at least. Yeah, I mean I, I gotta say that um, from reading this, from reading Yoshihara and uh, other stuff, of course, throughout this podcast, um, I do have a, a not newfound. I always sort of had a respect, but um, a, a greater appreciation for the amount of like actually intelligent and um, dynamic thinking that's done amongst in that strategic 
world. Uh, no, I mean, really, like, it's uh, not just um, <laughs> no, I know. dumb think tanks and, like, you know, um, uh, you, know, you think of these sort of, like, Rand Institute um, droids or something just, like, um, doing calculations to justify the balance of terror for um, – Nuclear, to justify spending on nuclear weapons or something like that. But no, really interesting takes and a- examinations of the weaknesses in the American empire. You can find them f- from no, those thinkers no, themselves. No, honestly, I mean, yeah, these are the most dangerous guys because they're the most rational. And if there's survivability for the, you know, the, the, the empire, the U.S. empire, it's because of guys like this who can say, oh, shit, what we're doing, you know, spending on these outdated weapon systems and infrastructure is just going to be disastrous for us in the long run so they're they're the more dangerous types in some ways and it's interesting to get their take because you can understand where the you know where the fractures are in the system so so yeah so we should just start talking about um captain hendrix and what this article is about it's called at what cost the carrier Mm -hmm. and it's it's largely about uh the survivability of the platform of aircraft carriers i believe And some of the alternatives that could be adopted if the U.S. were to make what Mabubani would call a U-turn. Yeah. Well, let's fir- let's just start first with the the overall sort of historical slash um, strategic picture he, he paints, which is that you know to to explain the importance of the aircraft carrier, why it became such a kind of canonical platform for um, American military force posture around the world. The you know in the previous um, the previous writers we were talking about, Yoshihara and Holmes, they, um, you know, reflected on the fact that the United States, because it's global hegemon, has to manage a couple of um, tasks or many tasks. But the two most important are what they call consta- constabulary um, missions, which is basically policing the waves, um, stopping piracy and gun runners and stuff like that, which they, you know, which they mm-hmm. share with China itself and other, um, you know, and, and countries in Europe and um, and India to some extent and, and Japan, combining that with being able to um, command the seas, which is to command any other country's navy, right? Which is to always have, a, have enough forces that they can coerce another navy. And so combining those two roles is makes the um, aircraft carrier absolutely pivotal because it's a kind of it's a it's a platform that comes with a um, you know a squad of other ships that support it, this battle squadron I think that they call it, and um, it um, is something that any um, all ground any deployment of ground troops is usually supported by. So that when they call in airstrikes, that comes off of an aircraft carrier aircraft carrier, and um, in any theater, they usually want the support of aircraft carriers. So it's a kind of it serves as dual, both military um, logistical function plus a kind of um, function of being a demonstration of resolve. Right? It shows your opponent what you're ready to bring into the theater if you have an aircraft carrier off offshores from 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 a, where a battle is occurring. And you know, it emerged as a such an important platform because the innovations of during the interwar period created conditions in which. You know, the, sort of some of the fiscal constraints that were in place forced people to think about how to improve the efficacy of battle group formations and and um, countering 
enemy navy, enemy fleets at sea. And so originally planes were launched off of aircraft carriers in order to help and assist in terms of reconnaissance to shoot other um, fleets. And then eventually they realized these cheap planes can destroy battleships. And then that – so that already brings into some of the, the kind of price logic at which it became – it becomes so crucial to have a fusion of naval and air power so that, uh, you know, a plane of a few hundred thousand dollars can destroy these million-dollar battleships makes them extremely eff- um, efficacious. And so, right, yeah. so that creates the canonical status of the battleship. And, of course, you know, it's what wins in the Pacific – and it's basically, uh, or rather, that's what establishes the canonical status of the um, of the aircraft carrier. And through this, you know, heroic, you know, um, series of battles in the Pacific, it is the sort of premier platform. And so this guy, Captain Henry Hendricks, is going to take us through why it's not really suitable for countering China's rise. Yeah, what's what's the basic argument? I mean, we we touched on it, I think, a little bit. Is it? Is it basically that they are running themselves into the ground? They're just sinking a ton of money into these, you know, just really expensive platforms that no longer do the work um, that, that, you know, they're intended to. Yeah. Uh, I, I don't know what, you know, it's on the order of millions of dollars a day that it takes to operate this fleet. Yeah, 6.5. Um, if you consider all of the people involved and the whole battle group, not just the aircraft carrier itself, but the several ships that support an aircraft carrier – um, which, you know, it's like 6,000 crew members. That amounts to about $6.5 million per day to operate each strike group. Yeah, I mean, ultimately, um, he wants to uh, argue that they need to use unmanned and um, unmanned drones and more um, automation and artificial intelligence controlled systems. But before we get there, can we nerd out a little bit on some of the uh, – the, uh, the actual numbers on this. You, you, just, you want you want to talk about missiles. Talk about missiles and, and dollars and, and sorties and battle groups and all that stuff. Um, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Def- I think it's. I think we have to talk about that because it's the. It's this is where all the money yeah. is spent. So let's let's talk about it. So basically, like the, this the the this canonical status or the importance of the carrier, the aircraft carrier, had already sort of been challenged by the development of. Um, Soviet anti-ship cruise missiles, especially out from submarines, right? And that, that's that's a big um, aspect that we'll, we'll we'll draw on later for that that kind of counters um, the aircraft carrier, which is submarines. Um, so the submarines like back up basically this underground clandestine force field that will protect you now from any military flights that otherwise could easily take out an aircraft yeah. carrier. Uh, so it's it's a it's basically the bench, you know, a very powerful bench, the sixth man, but it's underwater, yeah. and if another you know vehicle comes too close, it can bomb it out of the skies. And now there's a counterweight to what was before a very cheap way of taking out more expensive equipment right. on your enemy's part. Right. And so then you know this is something you know the Chinese, I think, pick up from the Soviets. Um, they had already been getting consultation from the Soviets through the 70s, I think. You know, I think Mao kicked a bunch out during the Cultural Revolution, or no, rather bef- during the Great Leap Forward. But you know, they still um, were learning from what the Soviets were doing, and their development of um, anti-ship cruise missiles is something that the Chinese have been um, you know, developing in their strategy for uh, more than 40 years. 
And um, so now it's a big part of this anti-axis um, area denial strategy that um, aims to basically force the carriers, force American aircraft carriers to operate at ever-increasing ranges from, from China, from their targets. And the biggest piece in this is China's DF-12 missile. Um, and, you know, it basically establishes a radius much further than the range in which um, an aircraft carrier can feasibly send um, um, fighter jets or missiles to hit um, Chinese targets. The American military strategists, you know, um, probably th think that their, um, you know, anti-missile technology and surveillance is so advanced that they don't have to worry about um, uh, China's defenses. Or, I mean, they have to worry about it, obviously, but that they have that 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 provides a kind of um, counter to um, to China's defense defensive missiles. But given the fact that China has so sort of embedded this idea of saturation missile attacks, which means not just firing many missiles at one target, but firing them from different locations at coordinated timing so as to disrupt the anti-missile um, technology of on these uh, destroyers and aircraft carriers, there's a there's a like there's just a probabil probabilistic certainty that um, or at least Hendricks argues there's a probabilistic certainty that they're going to destroy these aircraft, some of these aircraft carriers. That there's just there's just no way they're not going to destroy one. the The gears of Hendricks' argument revolve around what the operational costs of a aircraft carrier are, right? And the whole strike group, right? And this has a couple of factors to do with it, or, or a couple of you could say strategic ref military strategic reflexes that are in the in the navy and and all of the military. One is this he has this uh, he references this idea of the power law theory which says that the more interactions there are with americans formidable weapon systems the fewer american casualties there will be so this is a basic idea that whenever the american military is deployed it deploys in ex extreme you know um or not except well in large numbers with a lot of backup, which is one of the reasons why whenever um, ground troops are deployed, there's going to be an aircraft carrier supporting them, right? And so that's become so much a part of the reflexes of the military that nobody, you know, they're always justifying the use of aircraft carriers, and so that's created a culture in which you know no no president, no politician, no military commander is ever going to question the presence of the Navy. And he's arguing that they, they should instead be asking what combination of platforms could deliver the same degree of force projection capability that they already have in the South, South and, you know, the, the Asia Pacific without having to commit all the costs of an aircraft carrier. Um, we've referenced before how, you know, it costs 6.5 million a day to operate each strike group. But there's another aspect to it, which is the the actual, um, you could say the the contribution to actual air power that the aircraft carriers convey or, or deliver, which has to do with you know certain logics or certain developments in you know strategic bombing and how things have changed in the um, logic of strategic bombing, especially since Vietnam. I mean, he, he talks about how, you know, in World War II, it took 240 tons of bombs on average to drop um, for one bridge spanning a river to be destroyed. 
1965, during Vietnam, it took 200 tons. But after Vietnam, there's this real, um, you know, sort of sharp development of precision guided strike weapons. So that by the time, by 1999, it only take, it only took four tons of bombs to accomplish comparable missions. So what that means is that you're just having to fire far fewer, drop far fewer ordnance, right? In order to destroy a target. But that right. means that in order to have planes at the disposal to be used in any theater, you're paying more for fewer weapons to be dropped, right? I mean, or rather the ratio is, is basically increasing. You're still having a huge amount of cost for not yeah, dropping it takes much. Far fewer, yeah, far fewer weapons to do the same thing, right. all things being equal. It's just you're spending... It, I imagine this is leading to a surplus of weaponry. I don't know if yeah. that's actually true, but it sounds like that's basically it. What taxpayers are paying for, essentially, or what the military lets them believe they're paying mm-hmm. for is just not being used because they can be much more efficient with it now than they ever have right. been. But costs aren't well, going costs down. Are I mean, expenditures right. aren't going down. And so, the, and so costs are continuing to go up because of the technology is so advanced and it's expensive and the training for the pilots is in, just incredible the the amount of training that a pilot undergoes you know for, i mean even just landing on an aircraft carrier is extremely difficult but throughout their career they have to I've, constantly I've seen be top tra- gun i, I understand that, yeah, you, yeah. you kind of look like um tom cruise actually <laughs> um oh thank you thank you the um but so that's so difficult so the, 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 it costs like several million dollars for um, throughout the career of a fighter pilot, just to keep training them, and most, of, and then so that's the other things too. So most of the time, there's most of the time they spent in their cockpit is for training, but also they spend more time ferreting between locations or between theaters than they do actually, you know, at, at battle or preparing to um, deliver weapons or drop weapons. And he does this one figure, right? He measures. Over the last decade, what the um, average number of bombs dropped per aircraft? He divides like basically the the amount of ordnance dropped from 2002 to 2011. This is a period in which America's at war in two places, right? Um, from 2002 to 2011, um, he says the U.S. Navy expended um, around 16,000 air-to-ground weapons, right? And if you divide that by the thousand air-to-ground strike-capable aircraft in the Navy's inventory that only works out to average of just 16 weapons dropped per aircraft during the decade. So if only 16 bombs are dropped per aircraft over this decade, and the um, life cycle cost of a FA-18 Hornet comes to about $7.5 million per bomb. And that's ridiculous if you consider that they also have these other weapon systems, like the Tomahawk cruise missile, which you know is launched from a, a battleship, and or from a from a submarine that these manned aircraft are a huge drain on money and constantly deploying them makes a lot more sense if you're using them to support ground troops right at battle mm-hmm. because it's more important for a pilot to be able to see a target and not you know uh, mess things up and leave it all up to an automated system um, if you're working in coordination with ground troops than it does to perform this sort of overall naval surveillance and, um, you know, sort of first island chain force posture that's um, necessary to counter China. So the U.S. military is pretty dumb. Um, 
Yes. I mean, you could say it's really worked itself into a, a kind of conundrum here. Well, I mean, we're not talking about this because we're saying, you know, U.S. military, be more efficient with your bombs and more efficient with your war making. Why do we care that Hendricks has this to say? I mean, it's nice to hear a kind of uh, a controversial voice in the Navy. But ultimately, what he's trying to do is make war making more efficient. And as we said before, he's one of the dangerous types that could you know, extend the survivability of U.S. empire. So why are we reading this? And if you dropped in like at this point in the discussion, you might be scratching your head. Why are these guys nerding out on numbers and you know how many different aircraft have dropped how many different bombs? What's the what's the what's the the upshot? For well, the upshot is we're we're basically doing an in depth assessment of one of the claims that Mabubani made in Has China One, which is that the, he he claims that the United States is more like the Soviet Union during the Cold War in that it is spending on military way beyond its means and that it's not um, you know, providing for the economic substructure and productive capacity of its country um, to sustain that. And um, we're looking at, you know, we're sort of nerding out on a specific military logic of the actual theater of competition between the US and China and how that could create conditions for a kind of, you know, kind of boondoggle scenario for the United States as it tries to to counter China's rise. And I mean, if you look at things like the F-35, that, you know, more than $1 trillion investment for a plane that can barely fly, um, it's, just, it's so, yeah. um, so temperamental. Um, you can see that there are um, possibilities where, you know, that can, that, that could continue as, um, the security competition intensifies. Now, this guy Hendricks is trying to argue that, you know, the U.S. needs to plan for a graceful transition out of the ossified force structure that's that's already in place towards um, greater use of unmanned vehicles and, you know, um, light amphibious carriers and, of course, dependence. And this is another thing that's important, dependence on its allies, um, which means selling them hardware and, and, and um you know, um, having them share the burden of maintaining the crescent-shaped force posture along the first island chain. Um, he's he's very critical of what's already what's already on the docket. And of course, this piece was written in I want to say 2014, 2013, something like that. Oh, I didn't I didn't realize it was so, so, yeah a lot has changed in the last yeah half decade. Right. So, so at, th- at that time, he was critical of like what has was already available, which was it has the, the navy had developed the X47B stealth unmanned um aircraft and there already were the were the, the you know um development and extensive use of the predator drone in Afghanistan he thinks that the first one i listed is basically too expensive and the predator drone isn't really feasible because it can't go long distances and can't carry the payloads that would be necessary and it seems that you know um i you know you and i have been exchanging articles about some of the stuff that they, they are starting to develop, um, you know, um, cheaper unmanned vehicles and, and selling them to allies in the Asia Pacific. When we started talking in this episode, I felt like China's really in a pretty vulnerable position, and it is. But I think coming into the conversation, I was very pessimistic because you look at that map, you look at the first island chain, and you think, oh, God, this is – it's like – a panopticon, basically, the United States is all over the region. How does he, how does China have a shot at it at all? But now, when you flip it a bit and you start talking about some of the the point that Mababani was making about 
the U.S. acting like the Soviet Union in some way and, and getting itself into this situation where it's just spending out of control and it's bleeding itself dry, perhaps. I think that there's, there's actually a counter narrative there that China may have the advantage in some ways. And I think if we come back to that question, has China won? Have you learned anything new reading these more military strategic articles and books that helps you answer that question? Uh, yeah, I think so. Um, I think that, you know, when we were talking about Mabubani directly in the fir- in our first episode on this, we were sort of high-fiving each other saying, yeah, China's won. And look yeah. at how much better they are in terms of, you know, social human development and the the generation of output legitimacy, just the way the, the generational experience of many Chinese people of having been, you know, had, an ex, had a positive experience of their own government as compared to the United States. And I would totally agree with those assessments of Mahmoud And we kind of thought in a lot of respects, yeah, okay, China has won in the sense that China has done a lot of all the almost all of the right things, right to to put itself into a um, a good position. But having read this, the more the um, military and strategic thinking on this stuff makes me more pessimistic. Makes me think that the fact that China has won is not doesn't mean isn't that great for world peace. Not because of anything on China's fault, but because of the. Um, remorseless, reactive the reactive nature of America and the um, yeah. sort of remorseless um, logic of competition in an area that is so so vitally important economically, but also has a ton of instability. Late, latent in the system. I mean, there's not like a lot of conflict in that area, but you can just see there's like a, the given the amount of the you know unbalanced multipolarity of the system, the um, the the precariousness of China's coastal region to to attack all those things make make it a very um, very tense situation much tenser than I than I thought it was before having read this having you know read the Mabubani book and all the subsequent stuff I mean it also made me sort of realize dangerous a second Trump a second Trump term would have maybe been I was of course very critical of liberals and the way they sought to counter Trump and, you know, all, all that much of the hysterics and histrionics about Trump and Russia and all that stuff. But, and all, and of course about, um, how, you know, poorly he handled, um, rivalry with China yeah. in general. But, um, given how much more, how I understand how tense the situation is, a second, a second term would have probably, you know, would have given him more confidence it could have, it could have, it could prove, could have proven more disastrous than I, I kind of imagined. Yeah, I think that's well said, and and I totally agree. Well, we're not done with Mabubani just yet. I think we're going to do one more episode, and we're going to focus almost exclusively on economics, which is a big part of this story as well. And and I think we'll put to the test how much of this Bahamian thinking has benefited China in the economic realm, and what does China's integration, which is not a new story, but its integration into the world market. What does that mean for its future, for this possibility of decoupling, mm-hmm. as we've talked about, just tangentially? But that's coming next. That'll be next week. Um, before we get there, I mean, Mario, how do you want to queue up the next episode? Well, we're also going to be um, um, sort of unsheathing our, um, you know, sort of swords of Marxist debate because a big issue coming up with this is going to be not necessarily the sort of bugbear of is China capitalist or not. I mean – I think you and I basically kind of agree that it's not, 
but that a big, you know, sort of raise the sort of theoretical stakes of what imperialism is, um, what um, the nature of economic interdependence is versus um, strategic competition between great powers um, means, especially given the amount of interdependence that China and the United States have. So it's going to really, I think, raise the Marxist interpretation of um, geopolitics for us. Ugh, making me hot. Yeah, I'm going to get, you get, get, your, get your Kotsky out. I'll get my Lenin. <laughs> You're saying all the right things. Oh, and also we're, gonna, we're also going to focus on this book, um, Trade Wars or Class Wars, by Matthew Klein and Michael Pettis, and try to extract all the, all the, the choice nugs and best arguments in that book in order to try to understand um, the economic logic behind competition between U.S. and China. Yes, sir. Butcher coming. Yep. Uh, well, well, thanks for the discussion, Mario. I, I really appreciate you pulling these books out. I would not have read them otherwise. This is definitely the part of the bookstore that I avoid. So thanks for thanks for opening my mind to some captains and naval war uh, academics. So uh, until next time, man. Um, thank you. Yeah. Thanks for listening.